Thank you, Charlie. I appreciate it. I feel well prayed for a pre-blessed sermon here. Well, we, uh, um, as she said, your pastor, your normal pastor is on vacation, so um, definitely send him uh, a text or, a, or a, uh, a phone call. Well, don't call him, text him, and just tell him that you're praying for him and that you miss him and that he gets some, gets some rest and recovers. Uh, vacation does, the, you know, does wonders to the body and to the mind. And so, and toes in the sand, some, if you, there's healing powers in the ocean. Um, so, he's in Charleston, and uh, I'm, your, I'm your substitute teacher today, so please behave, um, if you would. Um, like she said, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 14. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture. Um, it's really iconic, and not only in biblical, um, kind of the biblical Text, but also in pop culture. So we're gonna we're gonna dive in it. So I'm not really gonna screw up anything, you know, majorly. Um, so please bear with me. Well, if any any of you guys are fans of rock music, but uh, in the 1990s there was kind of a a weird shift in the genre. In the 80s there was this real big push for kind of arena rock and weird kind of big hair bands. In the early 90s, I think it was kind of an outcrop or a consequence of this, this culture of arena rock, but it was called the grunge movement. I don't know if you guys ever heard of the grunge movement, but um, some of the bands that kind of were popularized were, were Nirvana. Nirvana was at the forefront of this, as well as Pearl Jam and, uh, and Soundgarden and, and Rage Against the Machines. I don't know if you guys have listened to secular popular music, but those are kind of some of the bands that were, were being made popular early 90s. And really, it was, a, it was a kind of a rebellion, I think, largely in a rebellion in the home, um, because a lot of these bands, the lyrics were very depressing. Uh, is a, you could see the struggle and the, and the hardships that some of these bands and some of these lyricists had uh, in their home. And the shift, that's not necessarily what I want to talk about, but the shift turned in about 1995 to 96, and I really think this shift kind of killed rock music for what it is today. If you guys look, there's not much rock music out there. I'm a rock fan, um, but there's nothing out there today. And I think the shift that happened was a shift from this depression-type culture to, in, in rock music to addiction-type culture. Bands, uh, and the, the shift that happened was from grunge to a, 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 a genre called new metal, and it's spelled N-U, metal, new metal. And bands like Limp Biscuit and Linkin Park uh, were kind of on the forefront of that. But one of the major bands that uh, I've kind of gotten into, and it's mainly because my wife sent me a, a testimony of a guy I'm about to talk about in a second, was the band called Korn. I don't know if you guys ever heard Korn, but Korn was... Um, I don't know, there's a real weird, odd mix of hip-hop and metal and dark metal and goth and Southern California culture, and it went, and they went viral. They went kind of triple platinum in just about everything they did. They had the most 
uh, music videos retired on TRL. I don't know if you guys ever remember TRL, Total Request Live with Carson Daly, but uh, I do. Um, but some of those, some of those um, songs, I mean, really just kind of, uh, even just the titles kind of give you some context to what they were singing about. One was called I Got the Life. The other one was Freak on a Leash. Another one was Adidas, the acronym standing for All Day I Dream About Sex. So addiction was all in this new metal culture. It was an outcrop of this. And uh, addiction was so pervasive that many of the bands were not fulfilling tours and struggling to end tours because of this, all this stuff that was happening. And Another thing that happened in 2007, and the reason I'm kind of on this, I'm coming to your, coming to your neighborhood, I'm about to make my point, is there was something that crazy happened in 2007 with Korn specifically. Uh, their guitarist and really one of the main songwriters, um, he was a meth head, he was a junkie, he was a cocaine addict, and he was pretty um, vocal about it. He came to Christ, became a Christian. He, he describes his testimony in the I Am Second video that he does as he was, he was trying to raise his kid. He was a meth head, and uh, one of his real estate agents invited him to church. And he said, I, I don't know why I went, but the Lord spoke to me. He gave his life to Christ. He went home directly after that. He said he chopped up some meth, and he, he snorted it. And he said, God, if you were real, take this away from me. And apparently God did because he flushed all of his addiction down the drain, he, or all of his drugs down the drain, and he, and he got clean. And he says later in his follow-up, this is probably, I don't know, 10 years ago, in his follow-up he said, there was nothing that could have taken, taken me away from that addiction except the power of God. And it proves that God is real as his power. His name's Brian Welch, and if you get an opportunity to go and watch his, watch his uh, testimony, he's got dreads and like dark uh, uh, makeup, and, and uh, you would not think, well, that's, that guy right there is a Christian. You, you, you'll prejudge him, but his testimony is, is incredible. I don't know if you've ever been in a place of addiction where it's crippling and enslaving, and, and it, it's holding you down to a point where... You can't get free, and all you think about is that drug, or all you think about is that thing. It, it's, it's suffocating, and it'll kill you. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been enslaved to something? Are you enslaved today to something? It might be porn. It may be drugs of some kind. It may be your, um, your addiction to people's approval. Maybe addiction to your kids and, and, uh, and making sure everything is great around them and, and addicted to being the Martha instead of the Mary. What is it? What are you in bondage of? And what are those idols that have a hold of your heart? Let me pray for us and we'll dive into our text. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for this moment in time and in history, Lord. We we ask that you come and you commune with us. 
Sit with us, Lord, and teach us from your word. Help us to look at this old passage and see it with new, fresh eyes. God, I pray that you would, your Holy Spirit would illuminate the words on the page, that it wouldn't just be words on a page, Lord, old technology, but uh, it would be, God, it would be an aroma that fills this place and it sets us on fire for your name. God, I pray that you'd be with us now. Help me, Lord. I'm a sinful man, and I need to be cleansed, and I need your word as well. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so looking at Exodus chapter chapter 14, we're going to really read the entire chapter. We're going to skip about seven or eight verses, but um, if you haven't heard the crossing of the Red Sea, um, then um, you're about to. It's, uh, uh, it's fairly long, but there's a lot of, I want you guys to focus when we read this. I want you to not focus on necessarily the story, but the little nuances and details that maybe you haven't, I don't know, recognized before or observed. Okay, so here we go. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a little bit longer, and I'll have the best phonics skills, so bear with me. Exodus 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Phaharoth between Migdala and the sea in front of Baal-zavon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the, Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants were cha- was changed towards the people, and they said, what is this? What have we done? We have let Israel go from serving us. So they made ready their chariots and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and all his army and and overtook them them camped at the sea uh, by these two places. The Pharaoh grew near. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away in away to die in the wilderness? What, are you do- what, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to, to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which we will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today... You shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you will have to be silent. You will only have to be silent. 
I want to jump down to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by the, by the strong east wind, and all night made the sea dry, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea and on dry land, the water being a wall on them on the right hand, on the right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all the horses and all chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels. So they drove heavily, and the Egyptians said, let us flee them. Let, me, let us flee from, from Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, and the water come, come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hands over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course. When the, when the morning appeared, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The water returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of, of Pharaoh and had, that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry land through the sea, and, and the water being a wall up, a wall to them on the right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant, Moses. Pretty good story. I love it. There's a theme in Christian culture, and this is really it, is uh, this idea, and I'm going to teach you a word, and many of you guys know it already, but it's called Christocentric. Christocentric uh, simply defined as Christ as the center of a passage or the center theme of passage without Christ being explicitly called out. You see that in the Old Testament a lot. You see kind of outcrops of Jesus in the Old Testament. You see a lot of, uh, especially in kind of, especially in the Exodus, I would say. And there's this kind of this cyclical Christocentric theme that happens throughout the Old Testament. It usually goes creation, fall, redemption. And a lot of the kind of the Christology is wrapped up in this idea of redemption, that, that cyclical nature of creation. God created the world, created the world specifically for certain purposes, created us for specific purposes, and that purpose being in communion with God, and somehow it gets, it, somehow it's where it's perfect, and then it, somehow it gets broken in the fall, and it's, it's on our head that sin has crushed this, per, this perfect creation, and so there's always this kind of redemption trying to happen. Now, the word redemption simply means to buy back. Uh, if I think about redeem, redeem something, I think about my airline points. Whenever I get online, I'm, I'm, if I try to get an airline, you know, a, a free uh, flight, I hit redeem, and I buy that back. Same way here in this redemption type of idea, God is trying to buy back, or we're trying to buy back this perfect creation. 
this, this idea that God has already set up and we're trying to return to it. Okay, and the Red Sea is, a, is kind of all of that in one. The Red Sea crossing, this, this passage is all of that in, in kind of one, this outcrop. And if you, you're thinking, well, Jay, how do you make that work? If you're a note taker in here, really there's three points to this talk. It's number one, bondage to sin or bondage of the Israelites in, in, to the Egyptians. God creating a way for salvation and calls us to simple faith, the, the walking on dry land, the parting of the sea. And then lastly, God defeating sin, death, and the enemy on the cross, the Egyptians being swallowed up by the sea. This Christology, this outcrop of Jesus in the Old Testament. In early 2010s, I guess you could say, from really 2012 to 2015, uh, me and my wife were, it was rough years for us, rough go. We, we, were, all, we were in ministry for some time, and, and we, our first ministry assignment was in Murfreesboro at MTSU. We were college ministers, and... and um, Really, uh, we were excited, excited to get there, pumped to, to be able to do ministry on the campus. Um, but something, I mean, really, it was a, the kind of the wilderness years, and it was the beginning of our wilderness years. We, we realized, you know, something pretty early on. Number one, the, the people that we were ministering with, we didn't necessarily see eye to eye with them. I know they're some of our dear friends now, but then we, I don't think we liked each other. Um, the second thing was um, it was really hard soil to plan a ministry at MTSU. Um, the the um, administration didn't necessarily like us, didn't necessarily want us there. Uh, however, we you know we put our best charm on and and uh, began to build a ministry. So that was ministry. Uh, we were Kimmy and I were flat broke. We had we had nothing. We didn't have. I mean we. We we didn't have no money. I mean, it was it was pretty ridiculous. But we had no money and we were broke. And by the end of our first year there, we were there for three years. End of our first year there, we it was a miscommunication, I guess, with our landlord. We get straight evicted and kicked out of our apartment. I, I guess it's just uh, responsibility uh, of you know of, of a 24 year old. But I was trying to figure it out and we got kicked out. Anyways, um, going on down, the, the 2014 was really kind of, the, kind of the head of the disappointment and the wandering in the wilderness or the edge of the wilderness for us. Um, we went for some assessments with the ministry that I worked with, and, and the assessments seemed to be um, you know, fairly uh, productive for definitely the, the leadership involved, but sometimes kind of debilitating and discouraging for those who are being assessed. And we got assessed, and at the time, I, I thought, uh, you know, I was going to be in ministry for a while. And the feedback I got from the assessment that was that, uh, that I, I was struggling and that um, I wasn't cut out for ministry. Uh, I wasn't necessarily good enough. And now... It was wrong on their part. They've, you know, they've apologized. And it, it was unmerited, unjustified, and they know that. And we, they 
We talked about it. There was issues going on there, but it didn't help my identity much. You know, it didn't help my, it, it really set my identity in a tailspin. Didn't know, you know who I was or if I was good at stuff or what I was, I didn't know what I was really going to do. On top of that, uh, that same summer, rough identity summer for me, on top of that, we realized something, my wife was losing weight. And if you, don't, if you know my wife, she don't have much weight to lose. She, she lost like 35 pounds. We couldn't figure out what was going on. We went into the doctor, and the doctor kind of analyzed her, and, and uh, they brought me in, and, and he ripped off the Band-Aid and said, your wife has type 1 diabetes, and she's going to be insulin de- dependent for the rest of her life. Wow, that's kind of a shock. As a 27-year-old, 26-year-old at the time, I, I, was, uh, I, I was really kind of contemplating life. I was like, what in the world is going on here? The next day, it's almost like something out of a movie. I'm sitting here mowing the yard with my 40-year-old snapper lawnmower, and it just stops. I don't know what's going on. I'm not a mechanic, but it just stopped. I needed Randy Little to come fix it for me, but it just stopped, and I'm like, I cannot get this snapper lawnmower fixed. Half of my yard is mowed. Half of it looks like a daggum jungle, and I'm like, gosh, my wife is, you know, dying over here, my career is failing, and half my lawn's not mowed. What in the world, Lord? Are you real? What is going on? And like many 20-somethings, their downfalls are the the trust in yourself um, gets broken, and uh, the, the pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and figuring things out all the time and it hit home, and I realized my idol was myself. It was my own strength, my own youthful zeal, my own ability to figure things out instead of trusting the Lord. The Israelites, we find here, are wandering around in the wilderness. They're just kind of floating. It says they're, they're camped by these two different um, places, and it seems like they really don't know what they're doing. They're on the edge of the wilderness. They're following Moses, and Mo- Moses is fi- following a pillar in the sky of fire in, in a cloud. And really verse 10 and 12 kind of sum it up, but they, they, see, the, they see the Egyptians coming their way, and they say, what in the world? We're going to be killed. We're, they're coming after us, and they're going to they're take us over. And if you could look back at verse 10 and verse 12, it says this, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it, is, for it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. We kind of see the idols of the Egyptians' heart. Number one, it's comfort. It's saying, you know what? Even though we weren't free, even though we're in bondage, even though we're enslaved, we kind of liked the comfort. We kind of liked the, the, the Egyptians kind of 
beating us up and telling us what to do because we didn't necessarily have to think of it on our own, maybe, or not exactly sure why that is, but the, the idol of their heart. Another, another one is it's embarrassing. Oh, is he going to bring us out here in the wilderness and we're going to die out here, an unhonorable death? At least back there, you know, we had some comforts. And this is very much of indicative of the Christian life. You know, very much like me and my wife's wandering in the wilderness, we choose the Lord. The Lord is where the Lord chooses us. Not sure how, where that, where that ends and where that begins, but there's an excitement, there's an fire, there's passion early on to follow God in this new life. We, we've escaped some kind of enslavement and the bondage of sin, but the challenge of faith hits us. We're kind of standing at the Red Sea and Pharaoh is at our back. And that's when kind of the character of who we are begin to kind of make its way out. Begin thinking, wow, life is, life is hard. And what I used to know, I kind of like that comfort, that security of, of just kind of doing my own thing. And those idols begin to come out. I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, and I think one of the greatest characters that have ever been written is Smeagol. I don't know if you've ever heard of Smeagol, but um, Smeagol is, um, if you don't know, if you've lived under literally a rock and maybe three rocks for the last three or four you know, decades, then um, you may want to close your ears because I'm going to have a little uh, uh, spoil, spoiler alerts here. But Smeagol, if you know anything about the Lord of the Rings and kind of the commentary that happens with the Lord of the Rings, Smeagol, the character, um, becomes Golem. And in the, in the books, uh, Smeagol obtains a ring that one of his relatives, he, he obtains it by murdering one of his relatives. And the relative had found it in the river. And this ring has kind of a, a special power um, that Golem gets addicted to. Simple as that. He begins starting to refer to the ring as his precious. My precious is what he calls it. And it extends to not just his life, but all be, beyond all really natural limits of his life. And it really, it's pervasive. It takes over everything. And centuries, in the story, in the story, centuries of the ring's influence has kind of twisted Golem's body and his mind. And time, and by the time uh, the novels catch up to him and the story, he loves the ring and he hates it just like he loves himself and he hates himself. And throughout the story, Gollum really is torn between this lust for the ring and a desire to be free from it. And Bilbo Baggins, I don't know if you guys remember the Lord of the Rings, I'm sure some of you do, but Bilbo Baggins finds the ring and, and Gollum kind of follows him around really the rest of the story and even follows Frodo to Mordor where he reaches and grabs the ring right before he goes in the volcano and cr the cracks of doom in Mount Doom of Mordor and, and dies with the ring. Commentators have described Golem, and I truly believe Tolkien was trying to on the same track, but describes Golem as a psychological shadow figure of Frodo. He's kind of the evil one the evil conscience, the, the evil heart of Frodo. And the, the good heart, the Holy Spirit, is Gandalf, the magical, victorious wizard. There's this 
these two shadow figures around Frodo and the central fi- figure Frodo being an, an allegorical figure of the Christian walking through this journey. And as you think about Smeagol and you think about Golem and you think about yourself, we all have a Smeagol living in our heart. We all have this addiction to our idols. We all have this love for ourselves. We all have this enslavement, enslavement to former sins and a former life. And before we start judging the Israelites, we got to realize that the Israelites are us. We're, the, we're part of this story. And Israel is living this out. And they keep running back or wanting to run back to their enslavement. Exodus 14, let's keep going here. Exodus 14, verse 13 says this, and there's kind of a turning, this is kind of the turning point of the passage. It says this, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So Moses being kind of a um, if, very indicative of, of Christ in, in, this, um, in this passage, he encourages the, um, the Israelites and he says, stand firm, um, have courage here, your God is fighting for you. And what to, what's about to transpire is, is really um, God over nature. In many ways, I don't know how it, any other way to describe it, but we see, um, you see, really, two major characteristics. One very much um, obvious; the other one is a little more nuanced. But the biggest one is his power. The way I imagine this happening in the Bible, and really that uh, it's kind of been popularized in, in popular culture, and in uh, Charleston Heston, uh, is that his name? The old school Ten Commandments. Um, is literally Moses stuck his staff in the sea and the, and the waters peel back and there's dry land. God makes a way. It's pretty incredible that he has that type of power. Doing some research, I, I was trying to honestly get my mind around it, but it took five years, took five years and over 800,000 ton of concrete to build the Hoover Dam. The, the trillions of PSI of head pressure that is on one square inch is pretty impressive. And it's a, it's a feat of modern engineering. And that is probably one of the greatest feats that, um, you know, humanity's ever built, and it was across a river, this was across a sea, and he did it in one night. It's pretty impressive, if I have to say so myself. And many people think, well, no, no, this this is mythological. This couldn't be real. This couldn't have happened. Well, the Israelites end up in the promised land, which is on the other side of the sea, and there was no boats built, there was no bridge built, they made it there. So this had to have happened. 
it's interesting. We see this power. We see God's power just on full display. And Jesus is really kind of has a similar power. And I think it's one that needs to be noted. About, about three or four months ago, I did a study over the, excuse me, about two or three years ago, I did a study over the book of Mark. And, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm just a country, you know, country bumpkin, man. I'm, I'm uh, from the middle of nowhere, so you got to really put the Bible in kind of layman's terms for me. And Mark, if you are just new to Christianity, I would encourage you to go study the book of Mark. It's very simple, and it's, it, it, it's helpful for guys like me uh, and you. But really, in the book of Mark, the first six chapters is eye-opening. You see Jesus having power over some, some crazy things. First thing you see in chapter 2, he calls out his disciples from their professions, showing that he has full authority over their wills. Number two, is he, has a, he, he heals an unclean spirit. He casts out a demon, showing that he has power over spirits. Third thing, he heals a paralytic, and it shows you he's got power over the human body. Fourth chapter is a parable of the sower and kind of ends it in an odd way. And it kind of shows you that he has power over future outcomes. He can make your seed grow or he doesn't have to make your seed grow. Fourthly, he, or excuse me, on the sixth point of his power, he, he calms the sea. Or excuse me, he walks on water first, showing he has power over elements. He calms the sea, showing, he, showing you he has power over nature. He feeds 5,000, which shows he has power to multiply. But the one thing that blows my mind through all of this power is whatever, after he heals the paralytic man, get this, he says to the paralytic man, he says, go now, your sins are forgiven. Why would he say that? Why, why would that matter? You just healed him from his disease. Well, even though you heal somebody from the external, the heart is what needs to be fixed. And the sins of people's hearts are what Jesus was after. That's what God is after here in this passage. This idea of, God, of, of saying to these, these people, hey, no, no, no. I'm your God, make me your idol. I'm your God, follow me and trust in me. Don't trust in your enslavement to these other things. So that's the major character that you see, this power of God. The second one is his faithfulness. Kind of a trend that you see in, in, in Exodus is that God makes a way even when Israel is not believing. I mean, it's a trend throughout the Bible and trend the New Testament. But Exodus, the Israelites are just like the, you know, the, the ultimate uh, skeptics. They, they kind of run to God when they see that he performs for them, and then he run, they run away from him when he sees that they see that he's not, um, or he, he, they see that uh, they kind of trust in their own self. And he, he, but he, he continues to be faithful in the midst of their skepticism and their unbelief. A good example of this unbelief and this skepticism and really the difference between the two is the difference between cats and dogs, all right? Cats and dogs, I don't know if you're a cat person. I am not. I, 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 I'm, I, I don't understand why cats are pets, to be frank. Uh, they're, they're a little 
I heard a buddy of mine call cats just little pockets of loneliness in your apartment. I think it's probably pretty true. Sorry, no offense to cats. But, um, but anyways, cats and dogs are very different. If you think about the mindset of a cat, you think about the way that a cat thinks, the way that a cat lives, is he, he looks at its owner and he says, well, this person feeds me. He, when he thinks about the owner, he says the owner, the owner gives him food. Therefore, okay, well, thank you. The owner gives him, um, uh, you know, uh, shelter when he's cold, and this owner pets me whenever, this owner pets me whenever I want petted and comforts me. Therefore, he must be God. He must be master. He must be king, and he must be the center of the universe. And because of that, there's this faithfulness of God's best friend or man's best friend. I don't know. You can forward me an article, prove me wrong, but I don't, I've not found many articles of cats saving their owners' lives. <laughs> I haven't. I have found a lot of dogs who saved their owners' lives. And I think the core foundation heart of a dog, I think there's something to be said about the Christian. There's this trust and there's this faithfulness to the owner. The Israelites and us tend to kind of like that old hymn, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We tend to go back to that cat and, uh, mentality of, you know what, I'm going to walk around skeptical and I'm not going to trust in you, Lord. I'm going to kind of question everything you do, much like the Israelites here. But God seems to be faithful even when we're faithless. And he says there in the verse, verse 14, he says that I will fight for you today and you are only to be silent. He calls us to a simple faith, not adding anything to it, not looking at our good works and saying, look what I've done, Lord, look at all the good things. No, nah, he's asking us to be, have God or dog-like this dog-like mentality of, man, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to love you, and I'm going to pursue you. Ephesians 2, 7, and 8 kind of even describe this even more. It says this. It says, hold on, let me get there. Getting ahead of my notes here. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse, verse 7 and 8, it says, or 8 and 9, it says this. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in God, in Christ, for good works. If we see that there, God creates a way for us, just like the Israelites he creates dry land, and he's calling us and to walk on the dry land. There's faith involved there. Walking on the dry land. It's like us putting our faith in the Lord. The, the passage of Scripture is very, uh, honestly, it's very intense. Um, and you never want to, um, I think the image of God and Jesus 
very much in our in popular culture is that Jesus is this kind of this hippie loving person. Well, don't necessarily mention about God killing anybody. Um, but this passage it shows the victory of the Lord that the, the victory is the Lord's. Pharaoh, it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened and that the, that the Lord swallowed Pharaoh and his chariots and, and, and horsemen up by the sea. There was a day of reckoning. And just like there's a day of reckoning in this story, there will be a day of reckoning in your own life. Whether you realize it or not, um, what you do in this life will echo in eternity. The, the way you live here and now will, will follow you in eternity. And your sins and your good deeds will be weighed at a balance. And really, the whole wrath of God will be on your head. And this balance, this, this wall of water that's being held up by this dam, just imagine yourself in front of that Hoover Dam and, and this wrath of God's coming down on you what are you going to do to escape it? How are you going to escape these Egyptians? How are you going to escape this sin? But God, being really rich in mercy, he gave his own son as a, tup- a substitute for you. He, and it's really the way out. It's, it's God parting the Red Sea for you and, and allowing you to have an opportunity to inherit eternal life, to have your, your sins that are being weighed in the balance wiped away and your bad record to be replaced by a perfect record. And that's really God not only claiming victory, but cl- claiming your heart as well. He, w- he wins and he's going to win and there will be a return of the king. Are you going to be ready? Are you, are you there putting your trust in the Lord? He's made a way. Red Sea is very simple, and it's a, very much Christ in the Old Testament, and it's God's provision for us. If you guys would stand with me, we're going we're gonna to close our time today by, by taking communion. If... You're in here and you're a Christian and if, you, if you've uh, walked across that dry land and you've, you've pr- placed your faith in the Lord fully, then we, um, uh, we invite you to take communion with us. We, we see this as a, a very much a traditional um, symbology, symbolic um, ritual that we do in order to remember who God is and who God is for us. If you're not a Christian in here, if you, uh, if you have questions about Jesus, uh, we're not singling you out. Don't worry. We're, we, we ask you to, to take Christ instead, um, and you don't have to take part in communion with us. But, um, uh, but I think some people are coming around with a little rip and sip um, cups, trying to, be, trying to be good for COVID. Um, but they're coming around. If you need one, raise your hand. There we go. And that's Randy. He can fix your lawnmower. Um, 
but anyways, when you, when you get that, um, if you don't mind tearing off the top portion of that, and, and this little wafer is represent, representation of the bread, of the body of Christ, and really what the bread of Christ is, the body of Christ, what it symbolizes is, is this satisfaction that the Lord brings, this emptiness that was in our hearts that we're kind of looking to all the idols that we trusted, this wafer is kind of the the symbolism of God uh, filling that satisfaction. Just like bread does for the belly, fills it up. Bread here is the same, same symbolic idea spiritually that God will fill us up and will satisfy us. So let's take that now. The blood is, um, uh, is, is very symbolic of, it is the symbol of, of Christ's death. Sin is pervasive and sin is real. And sin will find you out whether in this life or the next. And sin needs to be dealt with. If not, then the Lord will deal with it. Jesus was how, how God dealt with him. He cleansed us of our sins by God's blood or by Jesus' blood. So let's take that now in remembrance of him. Lord, thank you so much for, for satisfying us, for filling our hearts with the joy that we long for. Well, thank you so much for your son, Jesus, that he died for us and he provided a way for us to stand before you and to, to enjoy fellowship and communion with you like the first creation, like, the, first, that, like the, the way you made it out to be. Lord, I pray that we would find hope today in this passage, that we would see that, Lord, you fight for us and we are only to stand firm and have faith. That's, that's hard. Pray, we pray for our unbelief and we pray that we would that we would find joy and find peace and find hope in you. God, motivate us by this passage, Lord. Help us to be the, your workmanship. God, we are created for good works. Lord, I ask that you push us. And I pray that this would be uh, this would be knocking on people's hearts all week. I ask that you would place it there, God, um, unapologetically. I ask that you just change somebody's heart in here today. In Jesus' name, amen.